nobody safe from But here in my arms I'll keep you from harm There's no guarantee tonight That we will wake up When night takes the morning But if no alarm rings You can count on one thing I'll be your shelter Me call 911. But who do you call when the ambulances don't come? Or watch as the ones sworn by law to protect us. Wrong, fully convict us, then call the corrections. Next, they build the banks up when we in recession. And hang us in the jail cell so they can swing the elections. I walk Chicago streets with potholes as deep and Tahoes creep like TLC. Hospital workers and squirrels with no PPE. But they got money for riot gear. My nigga, we dying here, yeah. You tell me not to move with my gun, but we got more funeral homes than schools where I'm from and on the news. All you view is homicides. Tell me why it ain't no trauma units when everybody traumatized. Trying to get on your feet, playing a hand they dealt you. If your house is not a home, let this song be your shelter. 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 I'll be your shelter. Under the underpass, rumbling stomachs, cups, jingle when hummus pass. Brisk when summer's done, winter is coming fast. And then they zoom teacher wonder why they don't come to class. The internet been out, the hot water been out. She moved to her aunt's house, then to her friend's couch. The abuser went to jail, but that nigga been out. Producer was in house, they closer than pen pals. Homeless in the home of the slaves, I wonder how that would feel. The manifest the destiny of bunch of land they could steal. Think about Kenneth Walker and Philando Castile, how they only wanted to protect their family. While it's niggas out here that make it worse for they folks, it's a deeper how to hell for the worst of these folks. It's a mystery, we never heard the murder she wrote. If we finally paid her back, the whole earth to be broke. Welcome again, everybody. Another edition. Live from the plantation. Lynch Elijah McClan and sent us to the Middle East. 
to die for the flag. They drive us insane to sell us medication. We demand reparations and they tell us have patience. Instead of cash payments, we get minimum wages. They give us the black plague and send us a white savior. I found faith when I lost hope. That's when Julius reminded me of a bar I wrote. Behind bars on the yard where they dream of the street. On death row singing we could be free. We could be free.
people don't want to hear this. People don't like to organize around this, but we can't do it without each other. You know, if the organizing don't start from the ground up, from the inside, like we're not gonna have no success. It's not even. It's no way for us to have success. Like, how can you leave an army of two point five million behind and go and fight a war? It just don't make sense. And like, who do you think has more of a, a interest, a commitment? obligation, a duty, than the people who are right there next to you, the people you sleep right next to and sitting right next to you, like, who has more an incentive to do something than the people right next to it? Well, we got to find a way to reach them, you know what I'm saying? We can't keep putting that off. Can't keep putting that off thinking that some kind of magic trick going to happen in society that's going to solve these problems. That's wishful thinking. That's, that's, that's illogical. It's not going to happen. The people who created this problem have no incentive to solve this problem. Like, it's amazing the, the, the conversations that we have, some of the things that we hear people say, or the, the, the way that people act and respond. Like, I mean, these people are not going to make a move for us unless we make a demand. And that demand has to be backed up by enforcement power. And the enforcement power we have is laid out in our in our in our in our in our four main tactics. Like this is what we got. And I'll continue to talk about that because letter writing campaigns, email campaigns, and legislation that don't free nobody is not activism. It's not legitimate work. You know, we've been going through in the National Free Movement lately, we've been identifying the bills that have been used to build this 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 monster, this Frankenstein that they built. We we looking at the Citizen Reform Act of nineteen eighty four. One of the things that that bill did was that it took away federal parole. So that's one of our that's one of our demands. We demand in the rest, the restoration of federal parole. The anti drug abuse act, I think that's the one where the hundred to one ratio came in. Um the 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 Truth and Sentences Act. We all know what that is. This is where they close. This is where they seal the door. This is where they put the weld on the door. Like, you know, you get this bid, you're going to do all of it. You know, and the Crime Bill of 1996. Like, the Crime Bill of 1996, that's a project I've been working on within um, the, the National Freedom Movement. The two other bills are the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty Act and the Prison Litigation Reform Act. And the reason why I felt like it was important for us, and I feel like it's important for everyone to go back and read the actual bill. Like, it's already 2 million articles already wrote on this stuff. You know what I'm saying? But reading an article and reading the actual piece of legislation itself is two totally different things. You know what I'm saying? And so I've encouraged people, and I'm encouraging people who are listening, you know, those six bills right there will open the doorway to understanding of what's really going on in America with the criminal justice system. You'll see all of the money. You'll see it all if you just take the time and go and pull those bills and read the bills. Like in the crime bill, there's a provision that says that they will they will hire military officers. I think it said the ones who had been involuntarily dismissed from the military. I may be wrong. Maybe I didn't read the wording right. I'm going to go back and read it, but I know that they were saying that they wanted to hire former military officers to come and that they would hire them to join the police force 
in the correction officer's force under this crime bill. The funding would be there for them to do all of this stuff. And then the equipment, they talk about how they would equip all these agencies and stuff. And so when you hear the term war on drugs, what I want people to understand and what I'm learning through my research and the stuff that we're doing uh, with National Freedom Movement is that these people literally built a domestic paramilitary force to wage a real war. They waged a real war. If you read those bills, you will see that these people actually waged a real war in the war on drugs. It was not just a phrase or term that they used. They built up a military, paramilitary force made up of police officers and correction officers and equipped them. And they, they intentionally targeted um, ex-military uh, officers. It's all right there. You know what I'm saying? But when you, even when you read an article, like it may say, well, the, the, the crime bill hired an extra 2 million police or 200,000 police. It may give you that number, but it's not going to give you those fine details showing you exactly what these people did. Like who were those police officers? Like the article ain't going to tell you that these were uh, officers who came from a war zone, had war zone experience, were being recruited by the government to join police forces, and the government was saying, we're going to pay. Don't worry about it on the state level. We're going to pay for all of this. We just need y'all to hire, boost your ranks up, and carry out this. And um, one of the first laws that started all of this, the Rockefeller law, was passed in 1973. That was the first major drug law piece of legislation that was then used to um, 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 inspire the uh the uh I think it inspired the RICO laws and the drug laws that ultimately ended up getting passed in, in, in the United States. Uh, but like I mean these laws will put this thing in context for people to understand our situation. Like even with the uh anti terrorism effective death penalty act, um that's the law that took away the right of habeas corpus. When you hear your loved one talking about they got a statute of limitations, a one-year procedural bar is right in the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. That's where it came from, the Prison Litigation Reform Act. People say, well, I can't file no more lawsuits. I can't challenge these conditions or, or this is going on and I can't use 1983. This is the law. So they took one law and said, with this law, you ain't going to be able to fight to get out of prison because we're going to change the habeas corpus. You ain't going to be able to use it to get out of prison. Then while you're there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to change the Prison Litigation Reform Act, and you ain't going to be able to file no lawsuits about your condition. So they took all of our rights away. And then on top of that, they prosecuted us according to a law that the conspiracy laws that uh, reduced the state's burden of proof, just like, made up one crime after another, and people just were incarcerated in droves to where we are today. 85% can't make parole. You got a violent crime, you can't make parole. If you got an EOS, you send it through all of it day for day, and on and on and on and on and on. We know about these things from practical experiences, but we don't really understand where all this power came from. And these six bills that I just named, the uh, Sentencing Reform Act, 1984, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, the Truth in Sentencing Act, um, the Crime Bill of 1994, the 
Prison Litigation Reform Act and the Anti-Terrorism Effective Death Penalty. This is not all of the law. These are the ones that were the forerunner. This is where you'll see the the, the everything, the, the plate being set, so to speak. The crime bill was the largest, they said that's the largest crime legislation in the history of this country. Bigger than the vagrancy laws, bigger than the black codes, bigger than the uh, RICO laws, bigger than the uh, the uh, just they said this is the biggest crime bill legislation ever passed in this country's history. And if you're in prison today, there's something in it that affects you. So this is something that you need to familiarize yourself. And so that's what we got on the table within this research project. Uh, we're putting that type of legislation out. Um, so much other stuff going on, not just in Alabama. We see the stuff going on in Texas with the weather, and we know the impact that that's having on the people who are incarcerated. Um, it's like four or five different things going on in Alabama. The state has responded to the lawsuit. Um, you know, uh, that's going on. The legislators in session, the, the, the contracts have been signed about the new prisons. Um, and I'm forgetting something. There's something else going on down here. But, like, Louisiana has stuff going on. Um, the carcerated Louisiana is doing some things. It's just, like, it's stuff going on all across the South, you know, uh, the, the event for April 3rd, the parole event, South Carolina just put out their flyer announcing their date, location, and time. People need to be informed, need to be aware. I mean, like, we got to do something. You know, there's more protests going to be in Alabama. There's going to be some on the 20th in the state capitol. If you can get down there, you know, go down there and make your voice heard, make your presence known. You know, now is the time to do something. Now is not the time to be caught standing flat-footed uh, doing nothing in the midst of this in the midst of this organizing effort because, like, we're not organizing because we want to. They've made us do this. Like, we don't have a choice. Like, the things that we're doing, people want to say, you know, we can take as much credit as we like, but the conditions and times are such that it's forcing us, it's forcing our hands. You know what I'm saying? We had another person get murdered in out of my prison system in the last week. Another person uh, supposedly committed suicide. And then we saw some documents released yesterday exposing the fact, just as we just reported in um in our in our most recent article, people are dying of drug overdose deaths is being labeled as natural causes and showing up some journalists and people investigate have went and got actual copies of an autopsy report and it shows on there that the man died from a drug intravenous drug use. And it's listed cause of death, natural cause. I mean, so the death, that, that lets you know the death toll in these prisons for these issues, no one even knows because they're being mislabeled. They're being mischaracterized, and everyone's involved. The coroners are involved. The forensic science people involved. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows that we dying in here. They know why we dying because of the drugs and all of this stuff, the living condition. But it's not that they're not doing anything about it. Like, we're not doing anything about it. And by we, I mean 2.4 million or 2.5 million, how many of us it is. So we appreciate everyone for calling in tonight. This is live from the plantation, and uh, we want to hear from our callers, you know. Um, press 1, uh, come on. And let us hear your voice. Let us know you out there. You know what I'm saying? Let us know that the support is there, that the support is real, um, and that you're ready to join forces for somebody who might be listening. 
somebody might be listening and and not know that you out there, that you're ready to assist, you know. And so we encourage our callers to press one and tell us what's going on with you. You know, why are you here? What is your, why are you in this movement? You know what I'm saying? Why is it important to you to be on this call? Uh, why is it important for you to get involved? You know, because the time is now. I mean, this is not going to be something where we're going to be able to sit back and pick and choose when we're going to uh, take a stand because by the time the time comes from us procrastinating and putting it off, we very well could, you know, you could be dead. You could be dead. You could be dead from COVID. Um, these drugs got, I heard someone come on. Did uh, we have a caller, Max? Um, you got a couple of people that were invited who are online. Okay, go ahead and bring them in. All right, we're going to start with 0360. You are live from the plantation. 0360. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. We can hear you fine, thank you. Oh, you can hear me. Hi there. Uh, my name is Person Ricketts, and I'm calling from Onalaska, Texas. I am a steering committee member on the Statewide Leadership Council and uh, on criminal justice reform, and I run a small nonprofit helping women reenter society post-incarceration. I was previously incarcerated, and my husband is currently incarcerated. So I kind of wanted to call in this evening and share about um, some of the things that are going on in the Texas prison system, especially at the Polunsky unit. They have uh, no water that they have access to. Um, The ones who are stuck inside of course, have uh, less opportunity than those who are outside in the dorms. At least the dorm areas are able to go outside with barrels, get water and snow, let the water and snow melt so that they can flush the toilets. But there hasn't been any drinking water now for a couple of days. And so I'm sitting here this evening and, and doing my emails and reaching out to the wardens at the unit and trying to make some noise through the media and uh, the news outlets around town to let them know that these people don't have anything to drink. And so as far as I know, uh, I think it's about 72 hours maybe, and that's how long you can survive without any water. So that's what we're dealing with down here. That's terrible. I mean, like you say, this is a humanitarian crisis, but Mm -hmm. not enough people know not enough people know the details like you just gave to understand why we why we phrase it as such. Like, so I just wanted to ask you, like, how what are the guys? I mean, like, what kind of problems is this causing inside of the population? Like, what are the conversations? Like, what are the guys going to do about it? Because you're sending the emails and stuff. Like, you have to wait for people to respond. We need to get more people involved in that process. But like from their perspective, like, what are they considering? What are they thinking? What are they, because, like, if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, well, I don't get no water. I'm going to be dead in 72 hours. There ain't no water coming through the door. Like, what are their plans? Like, what are they going to do? Well, I, I tell you, my, my husband is on the, the outskirts, and so it, it's more, um, there, there's not as much security in the area where he's in, and most of the guys are a lot older. And so they took the water from the commissary and the kitchen that they had on supply and took it to segregation and to medium custody to the people who are the most uh, susceptible to violent tendencies or to act out. And they made sure that they had their water, but they left the quiet, peaceable people with nothing to drink. 
So um, I don't, I understand the reasoning behind that, but we've got to make sure that we have water for everybody. And I know that Biden had offered uh, the governor of Texas, if, if they needed generators, if they needed diesel fuel, that FEMA would provide blankets and water. And I don't understand why our own governor has not said, hey, we've got a whole prison system here that is in dire need of blankets and water. Can we bring those to, to our inmates? But there has been no acknowledgement from the governor, um, actually, since they shut the prison system down in March of last year with no visits. He's never mentioned them again. And so we keep encountering these, these ludicrous problems with, uh, with, with no solutions on hand and no policy or po- politicians that, uh, that are standing up on behalf of these inmates. And uh, it's, it's a real mess. Yeah, I don't even think that these people will come to our rescue, you know, no matter what. I mean, like, how much worse can it get than what it already is with all the people dying, uh, the conditions and stuff like that? And, you know, that's why I had asked the question uh, just a few seconds ago, like, you know, what are the guys going to do? What are they willing to do? Like, I mean, no one's coming to save us. Like, these people, we saw Senator Ted Cruz, like, he jumped on the plane flew over to Cancun with his family. These people don't care about our problems, you know, so we've got to care. And so it's always important to organize for these moments. Like we can't wait until the the proverbial, to the the PCs hit the fan. We have to be organized. And the effort, like I, I remember like a few years ago, I used to get mail like 20, 30 pieces of mail sometimes a day when people were actively involved in organizing people on the inside. Like, that's not happening now. Like, no one is trying to organize or reach the guys on the inside to get involved. Like, we should not be sitting around waiting on a catastrophe to hit at our doorstep before we decide we got to call somebody because first we got to figure out who we're going to call. Then they got to figure out who all they're going to call. Then we got to build a stream of information, of information exchange and backwards and forwards, like, we can't keep waiting until this stuff is in our lap to do that. We got to have a more robust organizing campaign to connect. Like every state should have designees in every prison. Every state should have, there should be an outside organization put together that has contacts with every prison in their state to be ready to respond to issues like this, to be informed on issues like this, and to, to call mobilization actions, nonviolent peaceful demonstration, or whatever has to occur on the inside. But, I mean, we're not going to be able to get this done without doing, you know, being being involved in it ourselves. So I just want um, do, do y'all have anything like that? Like, do y'all have organizing initiatives or anything that y'all are, like, kind of, like, building an infrastructure around the state to kind of, like, get the state organized? Well, I, I tell you that I, I know – that my husband would probably not involve himself in something like that for such fear of retaliation and what small little privileges that he has being taken away and the fear of not making parole if he should get involved in something like that. And so they're, they're shut down by fear, and, and it keeps them from, from moving and using the voice that they have on the inside to, to do anything about their own situation, I know that they feel absolutely helpless. Well, this is not directed at you personally, but I wanted to ask you I this know. question since you said that because that was very honest. Uh, 
for you to say that. Like, how do family members deal with that? Like, when you have a loved one, you want to – we all know what needs to be happening. Everybody needs to be doing something because, like, if everyone was involved, then they couldn't single out your husband or single out someone like – Right. How do you deal with that? Well, I, I, what I do, and, and I advocate quite a bit on the outside, I spend a lot of my um, free time in advocacy and, and working on legislation and policy reform and going to speak at events when I can and, and rallying support around locally, working with uh, people in my community, trying to get people on board. And so I started doing this in about 2018. So this, this will be my third year in working in advocacy work. And I haven't figured that out yet. The, uh, the, the, the opposition that is met when any time I, I, people have to be voted out of office. This whole system ha- has to be torn down. And, and I've even tried to figure out ways where maybe I could possibly get a job inside of the system because the system has to change from the inside out. And that doesn't just mean through the inmates that are there, but through the people that are also employed there. The whole mindset has to be changed, and and the avenues need to open up so that people who were formerly incarcerated can work in a place like that so that they can treat people with the dignity and respect that they deserve. Okay. Hey, Renee. I appreciate it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Sue. I just wanted to add, you know, this is a conversation that we have a lot, especially, you know, organizing the National Freedom Movement and really trying uh, to build up the coalition um, on the inside, right? Um, so I do a lot of work. I, I actually work with Kirsten and a lot of other groups and advocates in the state of Texas. And, um, I, you know, I have the same issue uh, with my loved ones, um, you know, the fear of retaliation. And, you know, it's difficult because, you know, we can do, and, again, we've had this conversation over and over, like, we can email, we can write letters, we can protest, but it really means nothing if we don't follow the policy and the procedures um, inside the institution. So, you know, I had to break it down and tell my loved ones, like, I'm not doing any action outside unless you can show me that you've at least filed a grievance, right? They're not going to do anything. I'm mean, not stand outside in freezing temperatures, and, you know, the media could be present. They can write story after story. It's not going to change anything if the people on the inside are not filing these grievances and going through the steps that they need to go through in order to at least have their their voices present in these matters. Like, you know, we can, you know, we can organize all day long on the outside, but it's really important that folks on the inside understand that. Like, we we understand that, like, retaliation is real, but the only way we're going to have real change is to get everybody involved because you can't, I mean, you're not going to change the minds of folks working, you know, inside. it's a culture, right? Um, so we've, we've got to, it's going to take folks on the inside and the outside, you know, and sometimes that means that I can't involve my loved ones in some of the work that I do because I know they may not be ready at this stage, you know, to, be as active as I would like for them to be, but, you know, it's a culture of learning. So, you know, as I'm learning bills, you know, I have to make sure that they understand why I'm doing the work that that I'm doing and, you know, how we can help each other. Otherwise, it's really pointless. Okay. 
guess what I'm just appreciating the just the honesty, like what y'all are putting off like in raw real raw facts is like, you know, it's it's great, it's refreshing. People need to hear the reality of that. Cause like in California, we had received a post they were trying to convert a general population dorm into a COVID nineteen uh dorm and the other guys on the general population yard, they all came together. They all went on strike. I mean he didn't define the word strike. I didn't know if they went on a hunger strike. I didn't know if they went on a work strike. But they all collectively, the post said that over 4,000 people went on strike. And so when they went on strike, they went, the strike lasted throughout the day. And, and before the day before the day was over, the administration came. And so when we're talking about this fear, like, you have to, you have to ask yourself, is the privileges that you enjoy more valuable than your life, because if you, we used to ask that question and say, "Would you want to give up your, your privileges to get your freedom?" But we can't even say that no more because now the, the threat of death has overshadowed the conversation about freedom. To so like, if you don't do something, like think about what that means in a COVID nineteen environment where they say social distance, keep your hands and stuff clean. They can't clean anything in those environments. They can't wash their hands. They can't even clean their bodies. So the contact that they're having, the exposure is magnified. And so now it becomes a life or death question. And so even if you're fearful of losing your privileges and whatnot, how fearful are we going to be of losing our life? Because that's what it has turned into now, and that's what they're looking at. Because I saw one of the prisons, they said one of the women's prisons in Texas where they already had a COVID out, a outbreak, it was getting worse. And so, I mean, like, where is, the, where is that point where either the family members have, because family, see, that's the role that family members have to play in the movement is to tell their loved ones, like, like Savannah just said, like, if you ain't finna commit to doing something when the time comes, don't ask me to do nothing now or later because that's an uneven relationship. <clears throat> we ain't trying to tell nobody don't help loved ones, especially if their life is at stake, but I'm saying that when we're talking about the long-term impact of incarceration, what it's doing to, to this, to this uh, woman who she's on the phone, her husband is incarcerated, what it's doing to her, what it's doing to her family, what it's doing to her uh, to being able to, you know what I'm saying, to, to have that, that, that loved one there with her to deal with this crisis as opposed to him being there or Savannah, her brothers being there as opposed to being in the household and around their mother and around their family and the contribution they can make. Like, all of this got to be factored in the equation when you pick their phone up and call someone and ask them for something or to do something for you. Like, what's the trade-off? Where's the balance in this? How is this relationship equal? And so that's what we emphasize in the family members. Like, hey, put your foot down. When we call for boycotts, we tell family members, hey, put your foot down. Like, if, if you don't want if you got to tell them that you can't take that collect phone call. And then by putting that boycott down, we're telling that phone company, these phone calls have to be free during this pandemic. Like, we're going to have to take some action. It's not going to be, the problem is not going to be solved in an email. So, you listening, uh, we want to hear from you. Please, plus one, you're listening live from the plantation. Um, any um, any other comments, Savannah? Okay, we got more callers. Go ahead, Matt. All right. Um Two three six three. You are live from the plantation. Are you? Yes, I'm on me. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, 
this is uh this is Lauren. I'm actually here with uh cause Savannah and I'm actually on board with Kirsten too. Just a second, but she said, Go inside for a second. Hold on, I'll be right there. Sorry, my son's out here. I don't really want him to listen to what to what his dad's going through. Um I actually just got off of the phone, um an interview with um with a reporter, um, and she was asking about the conditions down here, um, and it's pretty much almost exactly what Kirsten said. Um, the the rows on on my loved one's unit um, have no heat whatsoever, um, and so the guys are actually, you know, they're starting fires on the run. Um, he's in a dorm setting, but he they go and call him out for work at 4 o'clock in the morning to go go pick up trash. And they got him cleaning up, putting out and cleaning up people's fires. And it's like, how do you put out somebody's fires trying to keep themselves alive? And guys going to medical with their feet splitting open because frostbite is so bad. Um, I, I don't even know. And so I was telling the, um, the reporter about this. But then again, it's like it's an, it's just another news article, and so if that's not followed up by grievances and by our family members and our loved ones doing something about it too, um, it's almost sort of like you feel like it's a moot point. Um, and then I I have I deal with some of the same, you know, we worried we used to worry more about about retaliation, um, but like. The reporter asked me if it was okay to include his name, and I said, well, at this point in the process, uh, go ahead, go for it, because we've done, we've had, we've put our name out there so many times it doesn't even really matter anymore, and y'all are living in this retaliation every single day anyway. I mean, sometimes it's worse than others, uh, guaranteed, but it's something that you're living with regardless. And and once it gets to a certain point, I think it it almost becomes like more of a policy issue. You know, it's not, if it is so widespread that the whole state of Texas has run out of of water and they don't have any heat, they don't have food, they're not, you know what I mean? Um, Then you would think that they couldn't target any particular individuals for standing up, you know, if if we have more people standing together. Um, that's about all I had to say, though. <laughs> okay, appreciate you, it. Lauren. And uh, when you're talking about this parole, like, that's one of the things that we have a parole initiative coming up. We're going to have a parole event on April the 3rd. Uh, we've got a few, quite a few states that have committed to hosting an event in their state. And we want mandatory parole. People should not, if, 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 if your husband or your loved one or family member is in prison, they're doing the things that, that we'll say the state has required them to do or the, they're taking advantage of the, the programming that's available to them. Like, you've got a lot of people in prison who are being put off on parole so they complete a program, but they can't get to the facility. Like, if you put in for that program, if the state does not make arrangements to get you there within 90 days, 
then you should no longer be held liable for that. It should not be used against you because if we allow that to happen, then the state can never send you to the program and use that as an excuse to continue to deny parole. So we're trying to get a mandatory parole curriculum put in place. When you complete the, the, the curriculum, you're not waiting for a parole board or parole board discretionary decision where they can say yes or no. When your parole date comes up and you serve that time and you completed that curriculum, you're automatically going to parole out of the system, you know. And then so that's what we're going to have to do, like, all of their power, whether it's in arrest, whether it's in the grand jury process, whether it's at the jury or the judge, judge when it comes to sentencing, the, the courts of appeals when it comes to their review, the parole board when it comes to their decision to grant or deny parole, every layer of the system is vested with their discretion. Everything's discretionary. Police is in this discretion, he can arrest you or not. The grand jury is in their discretion to indict or not. The jury is in their discretion, guilty or not guilty. The judge is in his discretion to sentence you within the guidelines or outside the guidelines. The the uh, courts of appeals, they review, they're just discretionary review. That's all you get, discretionary review. Like, there's nothing guaranteed for us nowhere. And then when we get in the system and do 15, 20, 25 years, and it's time for parole, the parole board can say no. And you done did 25, a quarter of a century of your life in prison, and these folks telling you no. And you done did everything you to do. The discretion is the system from the beginning to the end, and we're challenging that. Like, and so that's what we're asking people to, to, to come and support what we're trying to do. Like, we're trying to make it where people can get out. We're creating a pathway to freedom through this organizing effort. But the only way we're going to be able to do that is that we've got to reach the guys on the inside, and people have to use their leverage. I don't care what your leverage is. Whatever your leverage is in the relationship with the people that you're dealing with, if it's because of advocacy, because they need you to do whatever, if it's because wife, if it's because your mother, whatever your relationship is, you have to leverage that into making sure that your people on the inside are taking action too. So I just wanted to add that. Um, if you're listening, you're listening live, uh, live from the plantation, we want to hear from you. Please bless one. Uh, we want to hear from our callers and guests. Today. We had three great calls so far. Uh, we got anybody else trying to get in, Mac? Yes. 9592, okay. you are live from the plantation. Greetings. This is McKinney. <clears throat> and I'm listening to this, and hey. I, I'm just kind of at a loss for words. Um, I've been in this movement since I was 14, and I recently turned 60 in December. My husband has done 46 years, and I'm going to speak on two things. Um, the discretion that the parole board has is just like it's amazing because you can do all the programming that they that they provide, but if you don't get a good psych review, um, a, a good assessment, if you don't demonstrate remorse, if you don't make the correct facial expressions or whatever, they can still deny and say you have a criminal mentality um, even after doing all that time, or if like for his in his case, he was in shoe for 30 years, so he wasn't allowed to program. And so our conversation and our dispute has been up until uh, recently is how can you hold them to the same standards and criteria that you can to prisoners that have been in um, general population if they haven't been afforded the opportunity to do any of the paroles? Now COVID is here, and so now that they can't, and he has recently tested positive for COVID, 
Um, and he goes to the border in April. So, you know, he's lost all of these other opportunities. That's the first thing. The other thing is is when people have been in prison for so long, you know, wow, their families, you know, some brothers do time. They do their time. They don't reach out to their families because they feel like they're being men and they don't want to burden their families with that. So some of them, that's just how they do their time. The other point of it is, is the community, you know, everybody is so caught on their day-to-day and doing their, just doing them living and surviving that they just kind of lose focus. And so for the people that are in Texas that don't have water, wow, I mean, like, you got to hit these motherfuckers, excuse me, where it, it, where it in their pocket. So the government, you guys got to shame them into doing what's right because, unfortunately, they don't care anymore about our loved ones, and they, they care more about dogs. They would put us in jail for treating a dog the way we allowed them to treat our loved ones, and we have to be hurt. I mean, for the people that feel like, you know, that they don't want to have any retaliation, you know, I've been there, done that. Um, I can't really have an opinion on that because I'm not in there, but there are those of us that are willing to just put it all in and and go the long haul, and and it's going to be what it's going to be because, you know, this is is not getting any better, and, and unless we just make people see them through our lenses. You know, they're still, you know, when they get convicted of crimes, that doesn't mean that they're not human, and, and that's what society and, and, and this whole nation views them as. So we have to really try and change that landscape and and just, you know, just don't give up on them. But this is, like, so just heartbreaking to hear this, um, and that's pretty much all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, go ahead. Hey, before we move on the subject, um, I really just wanted to talk about, like, I don't think that people really understand the, the dire um, situation that we're in down here in Texas. Like, and, and I'm blessed, I'll say that. Like, I, I did lose electricity for just a few hours, but just hearing, I, and pardon me for some of my words, but, but one of my good friends just texted me about a minute ago and told me that her house is inflamed right now. And, you know, these are the types of things that people are dealing with, struggling, trying to warm and heat their homes up with their fireplaces, sitting in their car, trying to get warm, trying to charge their phone and do whatever they can to keep their family warm. It is insane that almost 3 million households were without electricity. And the only answers that we can get from our government are, you know, you know, it's the green energy's fault. It's the fossil fuel's fault. Like, I really, you know, that's irrelevant to me. Like, people are dying from carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, and it's the, it's the community that's suffering, you know, the inside and outside. Like, people on the inside are calling their loved ones, like, because they are legit concerned about the conditions that their loved ones are in. You know, you can't get to your family. The roads are iced up. You know, I can't get to, I have a grandson who is without formula. There's no meat in the stores. There's no formula in the stores. Basic necessities, even if you had the resources to buy them, there is nothing to be purchased. There's no gas to travel. Even if you could travel, the roads are closed. Um, So I just, I mean, I just got really emotional because she texted me that, and I just, I feel really horribly because I know a lot of people are dealing with this. As you know, I work in healthcare. There's a lot of hospitals locked down. 
And so, you know, when I see, like, comments from folks up north, like, you know, they deal with this all the time. I mean, we are suffering because our state, you know, decided to go the easy route and forego federal regulation when it came to electricity, and we are all suffering as a result of it. And so problem with leadership, it's a problem with our legislators, you know, who shot down a bill just five years ago. Um, that would have um, really projected and regulated and, and took, taken a look at, like, water availability and climate. Like, you know, like Queen McKinney said, like, we really need to hold these legislators accountable because people are suffering and people are dying. And we are going through this in the middle of a pandemic, amid a pandemic, you know, where people are supposed to be sheltering in place, and now they have no shelter. So... Is there anything that we can do? Can we send, I'm sorry to interrupt you, can we send um, water or food or formula? I mean, I know know that it's bad down there, and I'm not trying to minimize it, but now, I mean, I recognize, I mean, I have loved ones in Texas, and um, my sister said, you know, we're not okay if you have people down here to check on us. And so, um, some people probably are not paying attention to that. I don't even watch TV as a, you know, but anyway, what can we yeah. do? What can I do? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I know there's organizations that are gearing up to help, but again, like, I'm, like, I'm struggling to find for your resources, like, for my family. Right, in the local grocery store. Like, some grocery stores are opening up, but as soon as they open up, everything is is closing because like the water is you know there's limited water resources because pipes were bursting because they told everybody okay drip your water to prevent the pipe from leaking i mean from freezing so everybody did that and then the water supply went low so now they're running low on water and they're telling folks because the water supply is so low you've got to boil the water well if you've got an electric stove you can't boil the water so, you know, you got to drink what you just ridiculous. People are melting snow to flush their commodes. It's, it's like a third world country out here. It's really super crazy and insane. Like, sorry, you can, uh, I don't even know what else to say. Be Frank for Justice is a good organization to help support. Hey, Be Frank for Justice is an awesome organization to help support. <laughs> and we are doing all that we can, you know, in uh, like I said, honestly, I'm so glad and, and blessed that I am about 40 minutes outside of Harris County, but, like, there's so much work to be done. The roads are clearing up, so now that people are able to get in and help other people, but just a couple of days ago, like, there were so many road closures that you couldn't help folks even if you wanted to. Um, so, but um, you can get with me, Queen Martini. I'm sure, you know, there's so many uh, orgs that are helping out, and I can connect uh, connect you to some if you'd like to assist. That's fine. I mean, if you need something, I mean, um, let me know. Yeah, I think Queen McKinney was asking you, like, particularly what can she do to help you, like, right at the moment. Um, right. But I wanted to ask you a question, Queen McKinney. You talked about what well, the other callers talked about, having loved ones with the fear, overcoming that fear and whatnot, like, what have you found, like, in the midst of all this? Like, how do you describe it? Like, what have you done to deal with it? And, like, from just the outside looking in on that problem, like, how do you how do you describe it? Like, what does it look like to know that, you know, I think it's over 100-some thousand men incarcerated 
in the California prison system. And we know that we had a power to change this stuff overnight, but yet we won't come together on that, but we'll come together on anything that has something to do with harming each other. So, like, what do you, exactly. well, just give me some thoughts, thoughts and perspective um, on that, what you learned over your 46 years. I think what we finally realized was we were in a dire situation, and after, you know, 25 years of thing, I mean, I haven't had a contact visit with my husband since 1985. And so individual sectors of inmates start trying to do things, but it wasn't working. And so, you know, the things that divide men in prison are essentially race. And once they realized that it was all of the inmates against the um, administration and that they were going to put aside all of that and work as a unit, it does not mean that we are allies. I mean, I think that there is a level of mutual respect, but there's not an alliance. But we had a common goal, and we stayed focused on that. And we are still staying focused on that. Um, but it, it cost us so much, you know, it took us um, three successful hunger strikes over 30 years to get them to pay attention, several legal suits. My organization was never forget, never again, never alone, because one day I was talking to my husband, I was like, well, how many brothers have wives or, you know, because I was doing packages and, and they were splitting them and, you know, because other people didn't have anybody that was looking out for them after 25 years. You know, we have to kind of think back sometimes and not to minimize the crime that's committed that put people there because I don't judge people for that. But sometimes the, the, the inmates' families have suffered as well. You know, like the brother said, you know, your parents had goals and dreams for you and now you're not there. And some people are just broken. I mean, the trauma is so real that we can't even explain it because we don't even understand it. We don't understand it. We don't know. What we know is our men ain't there. I mean, we used to go to parties, and it would be men and women. You go to parties now, and everybody is just women. I mean, any event. And so they have, they have taken the, the, the foundation um, out of our homes, out of our lives, and, and, and we don't know how to fix it. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, it's really hard to say because even now, like, you know, my, like I said, my husband is going to the board. We had a date, and he was supposed, he went in 1975. He was supposed to get out in 1982, I believe. He got a case in there. This is the first time since then that he's been this close to coming home, but I have to keep 100 with you. I know my husband, and so if they go in there and say the wrong thing to him in there, and it, it doesn't mean that he don't want to come home. I get it. I understand it. But I'm scared to death because it's like you don't even want to hope. Because these people will snatch it from under you, come back in three years. We want you to go. They have people going to AA and, and, and NA that have never had these type of substance abuse problems. And I'm telling him, I said, brother, it's just to show the discipline, just to do the steps. Um, and then there's certain stuff I can't ask him to do because I get it. I really don't have a solution. I just know that we have to just get them to see us. I mean, and, and, and everybody knows trouble is easy to get into and hard to get out of, but they want to hold people um, just forever and make them pay. People change circumstances. People deserve second chances. People forget, deserve redemption and forgiveness. And I think in order to get through this, we have to um, encourage our loved ones to let them know that we are still out here. You know, we still care. Um, I hope I answered your question, brother. You did. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, what a great, great hour, first opening hour. 
um, live from the plantation. And one thing I was just noting as Queen McKinney was finishing up is like, where the men at? Like, this seems to be a recurring thing. Like, where the men at? The women are here. The wives are here. The, the sisters are here. Um, the women are showing up. Like, the men, where are the men at? Like, you know, please stand up. Uh, you listen to another episode of Live from the Plantation. Come to you every Thursday night at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time. I'm hosting tonight. Um, I don't know if any of my other brothers are yes. in the queue or online and listen. Okay. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break and everyone kind of like process the information we received. And when we come back on the other side, we'll bring some more of our other brothers in. I have been expecting my brother Ilamba from Decarcerate, Louisiana to join us. Hopefully he did so that brother we can Mikhail talk a little bit. Of, okay, and brother Mikael. You have another call too. Okay, okay. So we'll that call we'll come back on the other side. We'll take that call and then brother Miguel, after the call you go ahead and pick up and uh we'll continue with live from the plantation. Thank you for joining everyone. We'll be back other side of the break. Can't go to schools or read Cause who's gonna serve my master Also the pastor describes all my people as The sheep who exist who will keep the land We feed the economy Creep all the crops that then feed on it modestly Consciously knowing you're lesser than And lighter skin means that you're better now So you in the house taking whips And probably dick Cause well you a fetish now Meanwhile I'm grateful for all that I'm giving I'm picking this cotton in rhythm I pray for a lot of the living Escaping is probably a sin And if God ever finds out that I want my freedom Well damn then God's gonna call in the rest Raise the girls independent, and she raised the boys out of fear. D 
these days black women representing the struggle that these black boys trying to clear, man, we have so much work to do. back for the second half of Live from the Plantation. Thank y'all for joining us so much. The great uh, first half was a great show, just some great stories, um, listening to people share stories about family, uh, what people are going through. Like, the struggle is so real, man. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know. It's, it's very emotional. These are some incredible times that we're going through. I mean, what we are subject, being subjected to um, in these cages is is people can't just comprehend, don't understand. Uh, and like uh, we had a wife on, she was talking about the fear that her loved one has of getting involved because of parole, because of privileges and what like. I mean, these people control us with a little bit of nothing. Like we're so impoverished, we're so poor, we're so deprived that these people control can control us with. I mean, the smallest concession. They don't control us with rights anymore. They don't respect our rights in order to control us. We so far removed from a right that they give us a little bitty trinket, a little bitty privilege, and they'll tell us what to do for that. We have to jump through so many hoops. I mean, it's just an, it's, it's an amazing, um, incredible experience to be incarcerated in America, uh, to go through what we're going through. And, and I appreciate the family members for sharing the stories. I hope you all stay on. Um, if you want to press one to come in, please do. I know we have another caller waiting. We're going to go ahead and bring that caller on, and then after that caller, we're going to bring on Brother Mikael. Four, five, five, six. You are live from the plantation. Four, five, five, six. Okay, four, five, five, six. My bad. <laughs> All right. Good evening, everybody. Go ahead. Uh, this is Thomas calling from New York, uh, organizer for rap campaign, release aging people in prison, and steering committee member of Black Freedom Project. I was, um, I'm sorry, I'm just a little uh, thrown off because I was, I was actually listening to the lyrics of that song that I was just playing, and 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 I ain't get up front. It had me, <laughs> it had me in the mix. That's um, Hawaii Mighty. Called Thirteen by Havaya Mighty. Okay, thank you very much. I'm adding that to my playlist. It's called Thirteen. Oh, yes, Thirteen by Havaya Mighty. Thank you. Um, first, I want to send um love, support, solidarity to the incarcerated community right now who's going through it especially those in Texas. I listened to Laura, uh, Laura, I'm sorry, Lauren, <laughs> Lauren and her organization has, has, has been an ally of raps in New York state. And we've participated in uh, nationwide actions with her. And I want to send love her way to her and her loved one on behalf of myself and the entire rap family. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to address what's going on right now. I mean, when you look at Texas and I realize that, you know, there's 3 million people without help and aid in Texas. But one of the things that we have to understand is that they don't look at us as P 
people, and I say us, the incarcerated community, because I am a formerly incarcerated individual. And, I mean, I, I, while I stand in solidarity, I sit in comfort. I'm in my home. I got the door locked, and I can open it and walk outside when I want. I know that there are so many people on this fucking call who cannot. And that is why my love goes out to you. Um, there, there absolutely has to be a substantive change in law. I mean, the brother was just going through the uh, the the acts that were enacted in 1988 and, or 1984, 1986, 1986, 1988, that really forged what we see that is mass incarceration today. First, you know, before in the early 80s, flooding black and brown communities with drugs and guns. And then afterwards, creating an act that would, quote, unquote, get rid of the problem that was created by the government to begin with. I mean, we see the plan. We know the plan. And there was a time when, you know, we moved on. We said, you know, fuck it. We're going to go about our days. We're going to go about our our regular lives. We're going to try and make it in this world. And and we're going to forget about it. That time is gone. It's over, and it's not coming back. There is too much going on right now. There is way too much that that the country as a whole sees as wrong. We got in the state of New York so-called 30-some-odd bodies from COVID-19, but the nursing homes have over 15,000, and they live better than anybody in a carceral uh, system where it's definitely impossible to to uh, social distance. So we know the governor's hiding bodies in the state of New York, too, in the state prisons. We know this. We can't prove it yet. But as far as individuals coming together on the inside, what I can say about that is that rap as an organization tries to do no harm. We try our best to do absolutely no harm because we're home. Some of us own. We have incarcerated members. We do have incarcerated members, but the majority of us are home. But that doesn't mean that we won't stand with those who act as they must in times when the oppression gets to be too much. It's as much as we can stand with you because y'all going through it. And no matter how much you go through it, I mean, I'm going to be frank. It may sound like I don't want to make it seem like I'm rubbing it in your nose, but I'm going to go home and sleep comfortably in my my motherfucking queen-size bed with my pillows and my comforters, and I'm going to be happy. And this is why why that I feel as as a human being, as someone who's been where you are, in a position where I can't say go. Because I'm not in that position. I'm not there. We're not there. That's your decision. But I believe with a whole heart that I speak, that I can at this moment speak for our core group and rap nation as a whole when I say that the support that we can provide 
we will provide. If at any time this struggle gets a critical mass. I love you all like brothers, because you all my brothers, every single one of you, and sisters, every single one of you. And I hear the voices of those who are who are saying like 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 but you know, I'm out here doing all this work. What what is my man doing? You have to realize that this system it hasn't been put together yesterday. This is years and years of indoctrination. They have literally thousands of years of brainwashing going on that pit person against person and black against black and Spanish against black and white against white and depending on where you're from and what hood you rep, what set you claim. There has to come a realization where we see that, you know, this is all by design. They allow this shit to happen. If any of y'all been inside the system, this is the blood table, the crib table, that's the king table, that's the GD table. They allow that to happen, and they allow it for a reason. But as long as we separate ourselves, they don't have to worry about us unifying. There's one time in the state of New York where everybody is unified, and that's through September 9th through 13th during any year. The anniversary of the Attica riots. Everybody fast. Nobody goes in the mess hall and eats. You could hear a pin drop in any mess hall while everybody thinks and reflects on what was lost. That's the type of solidarity we need right now. 2.4 million, no matter where you from, no matter what you rep, no matter who you be, no matter who did who, no matter who did what to who on the outside. We need solidarity, absolute solidarity, the fighting to stop, the bickering to stop, the bullshit. He stepped on my shoes and looked at me wrong. We need that shit to stop so that we can rally around this national freedom movement. This is what it's about. Because if y'all in there and y'all tired, we out here pushing already. But if y'all in there get to the point to where you tired and you pushing, you pushing the wall, we going to pull. We going to do our best to pull if you push. That's it. I'm out. Thank you, dear brother. And uh, in regards to what you just, I'm glad that you have ended with that because that was something that I wanted to speak on tonight and shed some light on. Uh Beam spoke about the fact that, you know, legislation is good and all, but it's nothing without action, right? And, and the action is nothing without solidarity and organization. Back to tie in what the brother just said. So we all know the movie just came out about Fred Hampton, and I've shown it like four times already. But there was a major thing that stood out in that movie to me as a connection between Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King that is very important to shed light on in regards to our situation. Uh, Fred actually was a student of Malcolm in as far as he studied the things that the man said and did. And two things that touched him the most was he said, a man that does not know his history is doomed to repeat. And secondly, that you have five digits on your hand and the oppressor can break any one of them. But if you ball them up into a fist, 
not only do you protect them from being broken, but you can de- you can deliver a devastating blow. So with that being said and he and him taking that in the mind, he began to unify people who were of the oppressed lower classes and bring them together and that was a force to be reckoned with, which is really what made him a threat. That is what got that man killed. Now I said that to say this. You do not know your history. You doomed to repeat it. So we want to pass legislation. We got brothers on it like Brother Thomas. We got legislation going on down. We got legislation going on everywhere. Maxing and working on that. But just as Beanley said, legislation is nothing without action. Now in regards to making that action happen, we have to have a coalition between all of us. We have to come together. Now, in order to get people to understand that, we got to point out the historical facts of what has taken place. Dealing first and foremost with the fact that after the Emancipation Proclamation, litigation, legislation, you feel what I'm saying, was passed, these people pretended for their own economical reasons as if they was with this and going to protect us. But once they got what they needed out of the deal, they left us high and dry. KKK formed, ran it on us. Later on down the line, Brown versus the Board of Education, desegregation, same thing. These people acted as if they were going to stand with us for political reasons. But then as soon as that agenda had passed, left us high and dry. We, every time we had to go the extra mile, we had to do more than protest. We had to physically take action in order to get these people attention and get them to enforce federal law on a state level every time. Now, here we go again in the same situation. DOJ has a mount of evidence that has been amassed since for years, videos, uh, pictures. They got the hard drives from these folks' computers. They know about the death that was covered up. They know about the autopsies. All of this stuff is recorded and proven in a court of law. Now, what's stopping these people from coming down here and doing something about it? Because they all are part of the same cast system. Understand what that means, cast. It's a form of rigid social stratification. Webster's Dictionary, in layman's terms, it's a funnel. Use the funnel a particular class or a particular group of people into a particular class of society, in our case, the underclass. Now, you can go all the way back to the Emancipation Proclamation era, and you'll find a man named Thomas Watson, who was a part of the Independent Party. He wasn't a Republican or a Democrat. He stood on the Senate floor and made a speech and told them people, do you not see how the hierarchy perpetuates uh, this this divide amongst you and pit you against each other in order to rape you all. They 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 eating off of all our backs. So we got to get everyone to understand that first and foremost. That when it comes to dealing with this caste system, all of us on the bottom of it. You know what I'm saying? Though some got scooped up later than others, or some got hit with different aspects of it. However it play out, it don't matter. You on the bottom. You on the bottom. You know what I'm saying? You subject to everything that's done to the people on the bottom. So you need to be sticking with the people on the bottom. When Malcolm X figured that out, he went over there. They say he figured all this stuff out. That the main thing that man figured out was where his power was at. And his power was in uniting the people, the underclass. That's why he came back and started the organization that would allow him to form a united front with Christians, with people who weren't Christian or Muslim. There's a lot of people that want to stand up for their freedom that necessarily don't want to identify with these different things like the sister said. We ain't got to believe in the same thing. We just got to have the same goal. We all got the same foot on our neck. This has to be made plain to the people in order to get them to see the significance of us coming together. All right? Now, 
when Malcolm did that, before that, when he was standing with a bunch of black people and they were calling the white man the devil, them folks didn't consider them a threat. Why? Because it's 330 million American citizens. And we at right now only make up 45 million, uh, roughly 13%. So back then, was, the number was even fewer. They weren't a threat. But when that man came back over here and started bringing everybody together, and he went to Harvard and Yale and spit this knowledge to them young Caucasian kids that was coming up with a different understanding than their daddies and their granddaddies was raised with, to keep this caste system going, they stood up and gave that man a standing ovation. He didn't make it no time after that. They got him out of there. Same thing with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King believed that just people protest for the legislation part, but not really the action. The physical action needed to push the legislation. You know what I'm saying? So by the time he came to that realization in 1968, you see his entire word, his wordplay changed. A direct quote from one of his last uh, speeches goes like this. He said, a riot is the language of the unheard, a crude language, one easily condemned, but one that we dismiss at our own peril. And people think Farrakhan came up with the Million Man March, but that was actually Martin's idea. That way he was going to run that they were scared of because he wasn't marching on Washington with just black or just uh, or just uh, uh, Christians. He was marching on Washington with the Native Americans, the poor whites from the Appalachian Mountains, the folks you've seen on the Feed the Children commercials back in the 90s. There were white people that were right here in America that were eating uh, bean and weenies out of can, living in a shack in the, in, on a hill somewhere. You know what I'm saying? He was taking them folks with us. He was taking everybody to Capitol Hill to call for a redistribution of economic power in, in America. You know what I'm saying? That got him knocked off. You feel me? It's the same demographic. You're going to see the same chain of events where every leader that arises to the occasion and realizes, hey, we got to bring the humbled and oppressed masses together. And if they are charismatic enough and articulated enough to do that, they're the real threat. They kill them immediately. So we got to remember that. We got to know that that's the first thing that has to be done in order for us to even have the power base we need to get this legislation not only pushed but enforced because they'll pass the legislation and then won't even do nothing about it. They'll take it to court and prove it in a court of law and then act like this. It never happened. So I wanted to shed light on that. There's never going to be legislation passed and enforced without the people acting to make that happen. And the people will never be power enough, powerful enough to act and make that happen unless they can knock down them petty walls of division and come together under the same common goal. We don't have to be best friends. We don't have to believe in the same thing. All we have, we believe, all believe that we deserve freedom. We all believe that we deserve equality. We all believe that we should be respected just like the next man should and have the same shot at life that the next man should. Underneath that alone, we should be able to come together to rise to the occasion. And that has to be perpetuated throughout the system, first and foremost. So back to like Benio said, we got to get, and we got to stop talking about it, and we got to actually act on it. We got to get someone on the outside and someone on the inside to go ahead and put together that liaison, uh, uh, a reactionary committee or an actionary committee, and have a representative in each prison that is directly connected to the leader of the prison system and the person leading the fight on the outside. That's the beginning. Now, once we got one person in every prison, then we can send them people out on recruitment missions and we can send them people out on information missions. 
So right now we're talking about putting together an inmate newsletter, which is going to be very hard to do. Also, last week I said something about House Bill 17 and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the net that they're going to drag across Alabama to fill up these new mega prisons they're going to build. But I did some further research and some further digging and found out, just like D. New said, it's not just Alabama. They're running it across the South. So Mississippi is enacting uh, uh, legislation that mirrors that, the House Bill 17 in Alabama. So these people are already gearing up. The caste system evolved. You know what I'm saying? Every time we get to a certain place in society as a people, then the system itself evolves to keep up with the evolution of the society itself. They always 10 steps, 13 steps ahead. So they already getting ready to run their next demo. You see what I'm saying? We have no more time to waste. If we sit here and keep on tripping over our shoes, then these people, before you know it, is going to have us hemmed up for a long, long time. They're going to rope up our children. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna bring in our grandchildren. We're a cash crop. So I just wanted to shed light on that, man, and make sure that everybody understands the importance of knowing your history, knowing what worked and what don't work, because these people really showed us the way, but we missed it somewhere. A lot of people missed it somewhere. You got to pay attention to every detail, and you'll, t- and you'll see where the threat is at. Now, this is another thing I wanted to say, all right? You, because uh, y'all was speaking about, man, I can't remember how he said it, but basically it's like this, all right? You have people that have been in the movement or come to the movement, they might have started out bonfire, but because they came to a certain level, like, okay, that's why I was going to tell you, Thomas Watson, for instance. Now, you just heard what I said about him and what he said on the Senate, on, on the Senate floor, but guess what they did to Thomas Watson? They approached him after he said that. And guess what? Behind closed doors, they said, man, what is you doing? You're going to mess up the whole system. But guess what? Since you know so much, we're going to bring you in. So they turned Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson came back a Republican and was speaking totally different. They flipped him because what he was saying was dangerous, and it was either flip him or kill him. And they still do that to this day. So you have people that be active in the movement, and then these folks, George Soros and all the rest of them, come putting their money on doing this, doing that, and you start thinking that you are part of something that's really working and they feeding you a dream and lacing your pockets at the same time and you forget all about the real actions needed to take place in the struggle. It's dumbing you down. It's numbing you down. That's why they sending uh, uh, Jesse Jackson and them to every hot spot when something jump off to talk us down, to calm us down. You know what I'm saying? But we in this generation, have woken up to that. So in Ferguson, Missouri, when he came up there, they didn't even, man, get out of here because we know what you're here to do. You're here to talk us down, and it's not time to sit down. It's time to stand up. You feel what I'm saying? So I said that to say to all our people listening that are working out there, that they coming to, if they approach you and they offer you something, they try to turn you or give you money, that means you a threat. That means whatever you've been doing, concerns them, and is a threat to their caste system. So don't give in. Don't forget the little check, whatever they got, whatever they offer you, because whatever you're doing got to be working, or they wouldn't be concerned with you in the first place. So keep pushing, and you're going to make it over the other side. But a lot of times we get sidetracked and think, okay, we start believing in them all over again. We're going to keep on running and on until we understand that they will never, ever give us anything, picketing, walking, marching, 
I mean, it's good. That's cool. Get some attention out to recruit or whatever. But then that's for to make action happen. See what I'm saying? But just doing that by itself is they these folks ain't gonna never give us nothing just begging that they go. It's not gonna ever happen. So we gotta be aware of the tactics being used. We gotta come together. Like the brother said, regardless of whatever, if you standing up and you ready to do what needs to be done, you trying to be a better man, you trying to fight for our freedom, our children's freedom, and our grandchildren's future, I'm going to stand with you. You feel what I'm saying? We got to stand together. I don't care if you're blood, crypt, disciple, Muslim, Christian, Jew. I ain't looking at none of that. All I see is a bunch of oppressed people huddled together, uh, stacked on top of each other like cargo in a warehouse, and we dying. Mentally, physically, and spiritually on a daily basis. The morale is on the floor. I'm talking about it's just ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? So ain't no room for division right here. With that being said, man, pay pay attention to that. Keep that in mind and know what needs to be done and act on that. Man, you, you said uh, so many things. Go ahead, uh, Brother Max. You got another caller if you want to take one. Come on, caller. Thank you for uh, calling live from the plantation. Nine one four seven. You are live from the plantation. Nine one four seven. Last four digits of your phone number nine one four seven, and you press one on your keypad. You're now in the host. You go ahead. So two two five area code. You might be muted. Okay. They might be muted. You got to unmute yourself if you're muted. 9147. Nah, block that. We can hear you now. Okay. Um, is there anyone else listening who want to press one and come on live from the plantation? We just had an um, open discussion about how we're going to put this national freedom movement together around the country on the inside, how we're going to get over these differences, these perceived differences, these imaginary differences. And like the brothers on before me, they pointed out that these these differences have been magnified for us. Uh, I like what Brother Fred Hansen said in the movement. We have to we have to we have to identify the contradictions and then enhance them and elevate them. Like we also have to do the same thing with what these people are doing to us. We got to make people aware. That's why I love um, our Dan Elder, uh, but now Ancestor Mafundi. Like he always taught us. Like they had a behavior modification program that they came out with in the seventies to try to stop the movement that the uh, revolutionaries were bringing inside of the prison. They came out with it. And he pointed all that stuff out to us. Like, we learned COINTELPRO through practical, you know, from people who we didn't just learn about it from reading about it in the book. These were people that went through it, and they broke this stuff down to us. And, like, you couldn't leave until you got it, and you didn't want to leave until you got it. And so we understand these things. Like, that's what allowed us to come together before that's the only thing that's ever going to allow us to come together. We heard Queen McKenna talk about the hunger strikes, the three massive hunger strikes that they had in California. Like, I don't know if this lore or whatnot, but, like, I was reading the story, and it said that when they had those guys in the shoe, they put uh, uh, a new African leader, 
next door to uh, a white power leader. And they said that the way that the social construct was in those careers, that the reason why they weren't concerned with having them next to each other is because they knew that they could stay in the cell next to each other for 20 years and never speak a word to each other because of just the history of the prison. I don't know if that's true or not, if someone can come on and speak on it. But they said that the guys were able to put that stuff aside when they understood what Mickey asked that despite their differences, they were being oppressed by the same people. And they put their oppression before their differences. And that's what we got to do. We got to put our oppression before our differences. And when they did, they were able to have the largest hunger strike in the history of this country, probably one of the largest in the history of the world. You know, and this is how they made change and they brought international attention to what was going on in California. And they broke the back of the system. You know what I'm saying? But well, let me rephrase that. They were able to, to, to knock another dent in the system, a major dent. They, they put a major dent. But the system has found a way to heal itself and to come back from that. So now here we are where we started at. Like, the work is not complete. And before we have unity, before we have anything, the first thing we got to do is have peace. And California, once again, set the example with the agreement to end hostilities. That's how they came together. They sit down and draw up a peace treaty called the agreement to end hostilities. And if we're going to do something in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Georgia, Florida, North South Carolina, anywhere, we got to put something down in writing, man, saying that we're going to commit to putting these differences aside, having a peace treaty, not being friends, not putting our stripes, colors down, none of that. We're just going to have peace for the moment to deal with our oppression. we got to have that. we got to have that understanding. So it's very important. Uh, we're trying to get our call on. I think Max probably still have you in the, in the host queue if you want to come in and say something. we got about... 20 minutes left. We're getting ready to wind down another episode of Live from the Plantation. You got another caller, too. Okay, go ahead. Bring them in, Max. 9592. This is Sister McKinney again. Um, okay. And okay, you're correct what you were saying in terms of um, the hunger strike. Um, there was four principal thinkers. So, um, one from each race and or organization. So, it was the ABs, the Mexican Mafia, the NF, and then the Blacks. Um, it was not um, a one-time conversation. You know, we wouldn't. Somebody might offer or suggest something, and they would have to take it back. And they might say it. It, it came down to wording, um, like there was like maybe the white boys didn't want the words to say trust or something because they still held their position. But again, what they knew was that these people were trying to destroy all of them. There's a brother here that was part of that. He just walked out. I was going to see if he could speak on it. Um, but um, hold on. This, this call, they were talking about the, um, the hunger strike and how everybody came together in California, and I was wondering if you could just, without saying your name, just speak on it a little bit. Hold on a second, you guys. Hello? Brother, Paul, coming on. And, and before you speak, I'm going to just say, uh, let you know how that we got to this point. Uh, we were talking about unity and stuff, and I talked about the agreement to end hostilities. And I had read a paper that was saying that, like, they were putting people, the leaders, 
in blocks together because they knew that because of the social structure of the previous that they would never talk and communicate with each other. And I was just explaining that in some kind of way they were able to break like 20, 30, 40 years worth of, of, of tradition. Like these are enemies to the end. We had never talked. And they were able to identify the oppression that they had and realize that it was bigger than the than the those differences and they they came to an agreement to put those things aside in order to, to make history. And so that's kinda of like what we were talking about in relation to the hunger strike. So can you speak to that? A lot of people don't fail to realize when the hunger strike was first initiated it was not designed to get us out the hole or get us back to these main lines. A lot of us was in them holes for like 20, 30, and 40 years, and we saw what effect that the hunger that them holes internal shoes had on us and those who was coming behind us. So for a lot of us, when we took the initiative to engage in the hunger strike, it was for the best interest of our loved ones or for them, them future youths that was coming to these prisons because we knew in time that those individuals were going to wind up replacing us. And several individuals, you know, prior to the hunger strike, you know, was dying of old age, dying of diseases. And uh, we did not want that to happen to our kids, our grandkids, and so forth. So we engaged in the struggle in mean, the best interest of those youth who was coming after us. So even the whites, the blacks, and the Mexicans who came together, you know, we saw that common link between us. You know, we was getting old in there. Like I say, I did 31 years in the hole. And believe me, from 31 years was not, was not all easy. But I'm saying, but like for a lot of us, I'm saying, that was our last ditch effort to try to make a change. And as far as the agreement to end hostility, you know, you know we started learning that, you know, within them holes, that, you know, we shared a common link. You know what I'm saying? We were not as different as a lot of us thought ourselves to be, you know, you know, racial violence you know, did not really play a role, and it did not serve none of our interests because we was engaged in a warfare that was an unwinnable war. And we all know when you're engaged in war, you know, you're trying to win. Too many people lost their lives in the wars. And uh, what was the final result? You know, we wind up in them shoes. We wind up, you know, getting old, never getting out of prison. We wind up dying in them shoes. We started seeing our children come to them prisons. They're winding up in the same predicament that we're winding up in. And there's no future in that. So I'm saying, so the hunger strike was the last ditch effort to try to bring about change. And in the end, it brought about the change because they had identified us as the worst of the worst. A lot of us got out them holes. We proved that we was not the worst of the worst. If anything, we were the best of the best. And we proved that, you know what I'm saying, to what we endured and how we came out of that. Some of us right now are getting out of prison. And we got out of prison. You know, we ain't engaged in no criminal activity. You know what I'm saying? How they identified us as the worst of the worst. You know what I'm saying? We were criminals in their eyes. But in reality, we were not criminals. We were trying to bring about some type of progressive changes within the system. We saw injustice within the system. Yes, we fought against it. And sometimes we had to go to the extreme. Because within that type of situation, that's the only thing that certain people understand. The extreme efforts that we take. So the hunger strike in itself was to the extreme. You know? A few people did die as a result of the hunger strike. And people today, some are still feeling complications because of the hunger strike. So we put our lives on the line, you know, once again to try to bring about change. But we took, we fought it on our terms, not on their terms. They would have loved for us to be 
the violent people who they made us out to be. But then, but in the end, we proved that we was not the most violent people that they made us out to be, and we brought about changes, you know, for the better. So, even though there's a little bit of tension on certain main lines, the main lines is better right now. And in reality, even in society, life has got a little bit better because the racial tension has went down, and it went down, you know, drastically. And some that's what, that's something that we was fighting for, to end, you know, end that racial tension, and try to come to a you know, common agreement that hey. Was in all of our best interests, not an individual group best, but all of our best interests. So the hunger strike was a good thing. The agreement to end hostility was a good thing. And I'm saying right now, you know, we're showing the, you know, the results of that by the things that we're doing today. So even outside of the day, we're trying to give back to the community. We're trying to, you know, raise these youngsters up in the right direction. We're trying to show them that the life that we're living was not a life to be glorified or a life to be looked up to. So. That's where we stood then, and that's where we stand now. I mean, I appreciate you so much for sharing that. You know, we, a lot of us, people like myself, like we learn most of what we learn about the hunger strike through the Bayview, uh, the Astra decision, uh, following those things like that. But, you know, like it's always better to get it, get it closer to the, to the root, man, because that organizing effort, is the standard really for organizing around the country, but they got such a tight lid on the California prison. It's so hard for us to tap into that knowledge base. Like we had a, a nationwide work strike that got up around 30,000 people, but it was 30,000 people spread out around the United States. Like y'all had over 30,000 people in one location, one state uh, participating in that across the state. And that just, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a difference. We have to acknowledge the difference in, you know, you have to pay respect where respect is due. Like, when you jump out here into this movement and you want to lead or whatever, you know what I'm saying, you can't ignore the work that the people have done before you got on the stage. And what they did in California was historic on so many different levels, you know, because the culture is different. Like, we talk, people be talking about their criticism and stuff and stuff, you know, but, like, I've over the years I've learned, I've gotten to meet quite a few guys. It's like a, it's a whole new world. I mean, it's another world the way those prisons are ran. And for us in these other states, like, there's a lot for us to learn uh, from our brothers in California and vice versa. They can learn a lot from us because, like, in the South, they wouldn't recognize prisons in the South. Like, I mean, there's not a prison in Alabama where black people are not the uh, majority. And, like, in most prisons in other places, like, that's rare. Like, but in the South, that's how it's set up. Everything is black and white in the South. Like, I'm in a prison that's less than 10 Latino people in the whole prison. There's over 1,000 people here. It's less than 10 Latinos. Like, so it's a whole different type of social structures and stuff like that. But when it comes down to the core, the problems we have in Alabama is the same ones they have in, in California and Washington and in Illinois and Chicago. The problems are the same, you know. And the way to come together to solve these problems is the same, too. The same way that we came together already, I mean, like, we got to do it again, fellas. You know, ladies, too, like, we got to do it again, man. And um, like he said, like, that hunger strike is a, is a, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a sacrifice. I mean, it's an amazing sacrifice and so extraordinary sacrifice. Yeah. And so if you're trying to accomplish something, man, if you're trying to accomplish something, you know, that if you're trying to get your freedom, 
you're going to have to sacrifice for it. You know, I know it's going to be speaking in general terms. If we're trying to get free, we're going to have to do something for it. These people is not going to give us our freedom. They got a 400-some-year track record of showing that freedom is something that they're not willing to give to people that they have enslaved. They've never done it. America has never uh, wholesale released slaves. You know, even in 1865 with the 13th Amendment, before they signed the paper saying go this way, they already had another trap laid. You know, so it was a brief moment, but, I mean, this thing that we're dealing with in these prisons, man, is not going away. It's not going to change. They're not going to release us. We're going to have to do something ourselves. Uh, Brother Max, do we have any other callers? Uh, no, we don't have any more hands up at the moment. Okay. This is um, McKinney. I just want to say real quickly um, that if we don't stand for something, we'll go for anything. And you spoke about Malcolm. You spoke about Martin. You spoke about all these amazing brothers, Medgar Evers, that came before us. And people said, you know, they didn't come on time. They came in time. They planted the seeds, and they gave us the tools, but we got to do the work. Um, these these white folks, they're steadfast. They don't stop. You know, they be in these, you know, roundtable rooms with these think, think tanks making these decisions about keeping their foot on our neck and keeping us oppressed. Um, unfortunately, we get like a victory, um, and, and just because of just our reality, you know, we, 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 we kind of like take a breath, but we can't stop. So we say can't stop, won't stop. We will never stop fighting. Um, and that's just the mentality and the attitude and the position that we have to have. We're not going to all win. We're not going to all get out of there. But we're going to die trying. We're going to keep fighting. Right. And if you don't fight, you're going to die anyway. You know what I'm saying? You're going to die a miserable death. You're going to die. I think I heard one of the revolutionaries say the worst death for a slave is to die old age. Like these people, when you get old and you've been slaved out your whole life, it's a miserable thing what you've been through. You know what I'm saying? Being stripped of your humanity, not even respected and looked to as a man, looked to as a tool. When someone say, hey, come here and go and do this and that, they'll make you live a whole life of that. Like, why would you want to live a life of that? Go out with some pride. Go out saying no. Nah, I ain't going to do that. Well, and then, then the threat comes. Well, you just, it's going to have to be what it's going to have to be because I'm not willing to give my life over to that. I'd rather give my life over to resistance and struggle. I mean, you know, um, Texas, I mean, Texas right now, the prison system in Texas, like, I don't think people realize the potential catastrophe that can take place in Texas over the next week or so if that situation don't improve immediately. And I think that we need to kind of like be looking over there, shifting over there, um, paying a little bit more attention. Uh, but we also need to make sure that we're sending a message on the inside to those guys, like, don't just sit there and die. Don't just sit there waiting to die. Those guys in Salano prison out in California just showed you that they wasn't going to just stand there and allow this deadly disease to be just dumped on them like the prison administrators had planned. You know, so guys in Texas, family members in Texas, loved ones, do not stand by and let them people put that thing down, you know, because... They ain't gonna have no mercy. They don't have a quota on the body count that they get to before they'll stop. They'll let it all go down the drain. They are not gonna look you can best believe this. Ain't no southern state gonna be the first state to break in this thing. Ain't no southern state gonna be the first one to break. 
they not finna break. They they have a they have this is something that they inherited from they 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 got they still got all they they books and all of they memorabilia and all of they newspaper. They have the whole everything of what their people went through during the Civil War, coming out of the Civil War, and even back to the founding of this country. They not finna give that up. That they view that as a birthright. The ability to control other people in large numbers, particular groups of people, and monetize it and exploit it and live a life of confidence and provide jobs to their families. Like these jobs are promised to them for eternity. They're going to always have prosecutor jobs and judges' jobs and, and warden jobs and commissioner jobs and secretaries and, and social media and spokesperson and they're going to always have these jobs in their in they family, man, in their family tree. They're not giving this up. We talk about the wealth and reparations from slavery. The wealth that's been made off of prison labor for the last 165 years is not chump change. Look how many people that, 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 look how many families are eating and paying bills and driving cars and going on vacations at 401k because of people in prison. It's 2.4 million people in prison. That's a lot of jobs around the country. Driving 18 wheelers to deliver food and and uh, the mailroom clerks and uh, the stewardess in the kitchens and the, the maintenance crew workers um, and the wardens and the commissioner's office and the secretaries who answer the phones and the, and the people who selling them the paper and the, the copy machines and printers. It's a lot of people making money off of this. They not... All of those people have an incentive to keep this thing going. All of them do. And if you ain't paying attention to that, then you're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the bigger picture. And so that's the reason why we're saying that it's going to take all of us on the inside in addition to whatever else we got on the outside. Like before we can even talk about the outside, the first thing we got to do is get this $2.4 million on the inside together. Like, how are we going to fight all these people and we got a pool of 2.4 million people that we ain't even tapping into? We ain't taking this group of people into the fight with us. Not going to work. Um, turn the show over to uh, some of the co-hosts tonight. We're going to really have our partner work. Cal, Savannah, anyone want to? Uh, we got about three or four more minutes left. Anybody got something they yeah. want to say before we go? I'm going to go ahead and get out of here before y'all close out because they just started to count next door. But uh, once again, man, please keep in mind that we will not get anything unless we unite together and then take action. You've got to have them two things. We're going to have to have a united front, and we're going to have to take action. And I've seen just I, – I know this from experience, not just seeing these brothers, but I have lived this. Ten years ago, I was at West Jefferson, the same place. They just did what they did to kinetic justice. They could not do that ten years ago. They tried it while I was there ten years ago. And they had to ask me for permission at the back gate to come in and survey the damage. And that was because everybody rolled. Birmingham, Montgomery, uh, Mo, uh, Huntsville, Mobile, Blood Crip, Disciples, the white boys, AB pulled up. Bro, what you need us to do? Everybody came. You know what I'm saying? That's what really set in motion the the drastic tactics they have taken since 2012 against us as far as the physical uh uh the 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 the, the excuse me the chemical warfare the psychological warfare see these things came in heavy after that 
You see what I'm saying? And they bounced up their training program to make their officers more inclined towards treating us like animals and not being, you know, humanitarian with us. All of these things came into play to deter the movement that was rising in Alabama in the 2010s, the early 2010s. And now look at what they done did with them simple little, little, little things they did, man. They got us discombobulated in their ruins. Like uh, the brother Benny said, man, you couldn't imagine what it, this thing looked like on the inside right now. And this is not how we've been doing time. I done did 15 years. This is not how I've been doing time. If I did 15 years like this, I would have lost my mind. I'm doing good. We all doing good to keep our sanity right now. So I just wanted to keep, wanted to tell y'all that that, that, that that should never have happened to Kinetic like that 10 years ago. But uh, thank y'all for letting me share, man. And in the words, I'll be right on the of Kinetic Justice, man. Freedom of death. Peace, man. True, true words never spoken. Uh, this Sunday, first I want to thank Max and Savannah. <clears throat> that's the, uh, for those of y'all don't know, that's the head coach and the quarterback of this operation anyway. So, like, um, both of them have been, you know, feeling down, been been a little sick this week. Y'all can probably hear it in Max's voice. Um, that's probably the reason why he ain't corrected no mass incarceration statements tonight. I don't know. But normally, <laughs> <laughs> he did he us a break tonight because, like, you know, I know from experience, like, he going to always keep the record straight. But, Man, we thankful for them to being able to join the show tonight. Uh, just, you know, being about this thing from beginning to end, that's 10 toes down. Like, these people, they could Impression ain't taking no night. So thanks to Max Savannah. She spent the night in the hospital last night. Uh, thank goodness she came out okay. Um, things are, you know, so we're just glad to have both of them. I just wanted to acknowledge both of them for making Continue to make that sacrifice, you know. When they when they time is called, they they showing up, you know. Rain, sleet, snow. Sunday on Abolition Today, Max is going to have, I think, the third generation one of the great grandsons of Frederick Douglass. They got that right, Max. Yes. Frederick Douglass going to be on Abolition Today with Max and them Sunday evening at six o'clock p.m. Uh, Central Standard Time. If you can make that, you know, please do. Like, I mean, these opportunities, you know what I'm saying, to tap into these conversations because we're not just trying to – These we're not just having – these are not talk shows. These are opportunities to learn, to get the word out. We use it every moment, every square into these platforms to educate, to motivate, to activate people. So – uh, I think you will uh, really enjoy the show coming up, Max Got Plan, uh, for Sunday. I'm going to be there. Um, you know, all things, you know what I'm saying, work out. I'll be there. I want to I wanna hear it. I think it's going to be, you know, another great production by, by the team. If you can be there, please join in. And we'll be back every Thursday night, as we always are. We're here every Thursday night, 7 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time. We thank all the guests for pressing one coming on to speak. Thanks, brother. Mikael for coming in and joining me in the host queue tonight. Um, and we're always looking to hear from people on the inside. If you want to do a recorded call and then come on the show, we can get us the recording and we can get it and we can play it up on the show. Like, we want people to hear from people on the inside. So if you want to do something to make something happen so that your loved one can participate in live from the plantation and get their voice heard, 
um, that is an option that's available to you to um, do a do a, a recording, and we'll be more than happy to play it on the show. Uh, once again, Ben Hannibal Rasan, your host for tonight, uh, joined by uh, Lauren, Savannah, Max, uh, Queen McKinney, Mikael, um, a couple more callers, uh, Brother Thomas from Rap. Uh, just everyone who called in, um, our callers, we, we appreciate it. And uh, that's it. We'll see you uh, next week, live from the plantation. You can always find archived bro- uh, broadcasts of Live from the Plantation at abolitiontoday.org. And that's where you can also listen to our interview with Kenneth Morris, the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass this Sunday. Peace. Can't stop, won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Freed the slaves and made more. They chained us down a lot to suffer, and then they made more. Yeah. Uh. I done took too many L's like a Debbie on Mari. You don't stand for nothing. They on kids, starts in incarceration of buses. Till we dearly departed Had to weigh my intent Double back for my hitters Yeah Ooh Free my niggas out the trap huh? Ooh Free my niggas out the trap Nah Yeah They wanna lock us up in prison We the slaves We the slaves 13 a midman Yeah Huh Uh yeah. 13 a midman Yeah 13 a midman Yeah Yeah Fiend yeah. just stole my stereo Roaches in my cereal We ain't had no bank account Disconnect my sprint phone Friends be looking pitiful Hard as that scenario Stressing that day Yeah, yeah, I got a wet Don't I? You ain't got no money Sleep on the floor Sleep on the street If you ain't got no job Ain't got no job No food to eat Everybody depend on you And damn it Who you ask for help Everybody down bad Ain't going through the same head You, you wanna- gonna do what you gonna do They call it Vibe. They hear listing servers and they selling dope survivors. And every day you gotta hustle just to stay afloat. You look around and all your brothers in the same boat. Your skin proud, black, they put us in sets and they got us bit. I'm a public spitting fat, take your conceit, that's straight to pit. And the youngest ain't shot, you lacking on spitting facts. In the bottom of the bank, lose the trial, ain't coming back, yeah. Ooh, free my niggas like the trap, huh? You don't stand for nothing. They don't kill you. Start the incarceration of us till we delete the party. Had to wear my teeth. Double back for my hair. Yeah. God be our strength when we broke as hell. When we going through hell, living in hell, living in cells. All this oppression, no, you see us in it. All this depression, no, you see us in it. Lord, it's my vessel. Pass on all my sin. No, you a vengeance. I know your mercy is still. Mercy to the slums. Mercy for us all to repent. Free us for myself. Change our highlight. We was lost, but you ain't forsaken. You took the cross just to save us, yeah. Hey. Prima, side the trap, huh? huh. Prima, this out the trap, nah, yeah. They tryna lock us up in prison. We the slaves, we the slaves. 13 of me, man, yeah. Side the trap, huh? huh. Prima, this out the trap, nah, yeah. They wanna lock us up in prison. We the slaves, we the slaves. 13 of me, man, yeah. We the slaves, we the slaves, 13 of men, man.